itself and how I came to be here today, how I came to know Gary George. I got saved in 1994. and 1995, I felt God's call to preach. And my mentor said, well, you're going to learn how to preach on the street. And he gave me Gary George's number. He said, give him a call. He'll, he'll set you up. And so I called Gary. Gary said, oh, great. Yeah, come on down. We, we've got a great group of people that come down here. We've got an open mic. We give away Bibles and the whole thing. So not really understanding all that much about street ministry, I went ahead and wrote out six pages of notes. And I got down there. It was a windy day. And it was a mic you hold in your hand. It was just, it was a mess. But I preached. And uh, so Gary and I uh, established a, a friendship from that point on. And then, you know, we were in touch over the years. And then it seems like the last six or eight years, Gary and I uh, got closer together and uh, spent some time fellowshipping together and talking about theology and evangelism and the state of things in our nation and so forth. And I just sharing with him a little bit about some of my changes and transitions in my theology a little bit, my look or outlook towards Reformed theology in particular. Uh, to some that may come as a surprise, but there was a time when I was pretty radically opposed to Calvinism or Reformed theology. Uh, but over time, as I was reading Reformed theology, of course I didn't know I was reading Reformed theology, and most that do oppose it don't realize that they are. And so everybody has Matthew Henry or Matthew Poole. And so those are great Calvinists, reformers of the faith with great doctrine and excellent resources. And then, of course, there's Charles Spurgeon. I mean, who doesn't know Charles Spurgeon? Um, I think there's more memes with Charles Spurgeon's quotes on it than anything else. He'd be the prince of memes if he were alive today. There's, you know, his Treasury of David. Most people are familiar with the Treasury of David. And what an inspiration and an encouragement um, the Treasury of David is. And then, of course, his sermons as well. All great stuff. My love for history is really what started to get my mind to shift. I'm Baptist. I'll, I'll die a Baptist. But one of the things about being a Baptist that I appreciate is their fight for liberty of conscience or individual soul liberty. And that's a big deal to me. And it should be a big deal to you. And so the men that I studied, Obadiah Holmes, uh, John Clark, Roger Williams, Elder Leland. These are great men in history. And if you have not had a chance to look into the history and the influence of these great men, you need to. For example, John Clark and Roger Williams both petitioned King Charles II. I believe it was John Clark who stayed for 12 years and he came back with a charter to conduct what was called a lively experiment. If you look on the town hall in Rhode Island, you'll see the statement to that effect uh, with regards to Roger Williams. Elder Leland, um, he worked with the president, James Madison, at the time. And he is a big part of the reason why we have the First Amendment, the freedom of religion. Well, Elder Leland and John Clark, Obadiah Holmes, as I began to read into these men, what did these men believe? What was their theology? Because theology drives you. Theology frames the way we live. Theology frames our ministries. And so I started to get into their backgrounds, and I found out that they were Calvinists. I found out that they were reformed in their theology. Obadiah Holmes, and 
Some of you are probably familiar with the whipping post. He, they were caught, him and John Clark and several others were caught having a church service or what they called a convectible back then. You weren't allowed to have a church service without state permission. And so they were caught and arrested and jailed. Uh, the rest of them were free, but Obadiah Holmes decided that he was going to uh, take the whipping. And there's a quote that's associated with that particular incident, as with roses. They had asked him how he felt about the whipping, and he said it's as with roses. Obadiah Holmes, uh, there's a book called The Last Will and Testament of Obadiah Holmes. Uh, he was clearly Calvinistic in his theology. So I began looking at all these things and noticing that there was a certain theological foundation that drove them. Same thing with Charles Spurgeon. Same thing with uh, Whitfield and Edwards and the main subject for this morning as a Nettleton. The theology is what drove them. And, and that's what drives me and I'm assuming that's what drives you all that are here today. And I just wanted to mirror a little bit what the brother said earlier. It's encouraging to see how this has transitioned from 15 to 20 to 40 to 50 to 70. And now we have, you know, probably close to 80 people that are present here this morning. And it does show that God is at work and he is, he is doing his, his work in God's people. So I want to read to you, in keeping with Puritan tradition from the Geneva Bible, some of you may get that. That was the first Bible that came over on the continent, not the King James, for those of you that may not know that. But one of my, one of my main verses is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse number 12. And Paul said this, Therefore I thank him which hath made me strong, that is Christ Jesus our Lord, for he counted me faithful and put me in his service. When before I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an oppressor, but I was received to mercy, for I did it ignorantly through unbelief. When I was first called to preach, I didn't understand why God would call me to pastor a church. And I didn't understand how God was going to work all that out. The men that were around me during that period of time were uh, intellectual men. They were uh, educated men. They were going to the seminary. I didn't have any of that. Uh, but my mentor said to me, he said, if, if you are called to preach, I will mentor you. And so for 10 years, I sat under his mentorship, and of course, I got introduced to street preaching through Brother Gary, and then I started preaching in a nursing home, and then other doors opened up to me. Uh, a couple of incidents, and then we'll, we'll get to this uh, subject for this morning, but there was an, uh, an occasion, I was working at FlexCon at the time, and there was a fellow there, Charlie Schultz, and he was going to a congregational church. Now, you have to keep in mind, at this time, I didn't understand the difference in the congregational churches. I didn't know there were two types of congregational church. There's a Reformed congregational church, and there's a Unitarian. Because I didn't know at the time, so I just went, because it was a door that was opened up to me, and decided that I would just let it fly. I was a lot of zeal, but not a whole lot of knowledge. And uh, they enjoyed the message, and I went back and preached again. Then I was involved with Transport for Christ. It's a truck stop ministry, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, it's the one in Shrewsbury on Route 9. Uh, and I spent a little over a year, probably close to two years, ministering there to the truck drivers that uh, came from all parts of the country. It was fascinating, fascinating ministry. I got to meet some really great men, and uh, they shared quite a bit of burden. It's, it really is a big burden for the truck drivers 
Uh, they're on the road a lot. They're away from their families, and you know they struggle spiritually. They just want to find a connection and, and get tied in. The other thing that my mentor did is he had me preaching in a nursing home, at Homestead Hall on Southbridge Street in Worcester. I preached there for many years, and it was truly a blessing to a minister in that capacity. And then in 2004, I joined Bible Way Baptist Church. In 2005, I was ordained. In 2006, December 24th, I was called to be the pastor, and I've been the pastor there ever since. And so in the midst of all of this, uh, Gary and I have managed to keep in touch, pray for one another, uh, been over his house for fellowship, and so forth. And in the process of all of that, uh, Gary and I talked about some of what I'm reading and some of the men in history that really uh, ministered to me. There's quite a few, actually, that have ministered to me. But as I held Nettleton, really struck a chord with me. And, and, and I want to share a little bit with you this morning about his background and how he's ministered to me. Because there's certain things from a theological perspective and ministry perspective that sort of kind of crossroads is some things I've learned about Asahel Nettleton that I was trying to deal with, some questions that I was trying to find some answers to. And they, they all kind of intersected and were able to give me uh, some confirmation about some things. One of the things about Asahel Nettleton that I found very interesting is that he's almost forgotten. Not many people know about Asahel Nettleton. Uh, I read a lot of the history books and revival books, and, and maybe his name came up, but certainly not as pronounced as Jonathan Edwards or a George Whitfield. I think everybody knows about Jonathan Edwards, and everybody knows about Whitfield. Uh, you probably have Edwards' two volumes set on your shelf. Maybe you have a biography by Whitfield. But Nettleton seems to be lost in the shuffle. And I want to resurrect that because I think it's important to understand how these old revivalists, these old school, these old paths revivalists ministered, how they preached, what was their dependence, uh, where was their dependence, where was their focus. And that can help us tremendously as we're talking about revival here. We, had a, we get caught up in pragmatism and methods and the Finney aspect of it, it it's not working. And, and it was never meant to work. And I'm going to get ahead of myself here a little bit. So what got me started on Asahel Nettleton was a friend of mine on social media. He went by the name of Asahel Nettleton. And so in one of my private conversations with him, I called him Mr. Nettleton. And he said, no, my name is not Mr. Nettleton. My name is. And I said, well, then what, what's up with Nettleton? He said, Nettleton is a, a revivalist during the Second Great Awakening. And of course, my curiosity was piqued, and I said, I'm going to find out about this Mr. Nettleton. So you, you do what you do. You go on Google, and you Google as a hell Nettleton, and a whole slew of things comes up. And I went out, and I bought two books that I could find on Amazon, God Sent Revival by J.F. Thornberry, and then The Life and Labors of Azahel Nettleton by Bennett Tyler and Andrew Bonner. For those of you that are pastors here, or even non-pastors, I would recommend the diary of Andrew Bonner. If you have not read that, I would recommend that you get that library, uh, that book, and read it. Add it to your library. Uh, these are the two sources, two of the three sources that I've used for this lecture this morning. The third one, actually, I'm sorry, there's four, uh, Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. 
and I would highly recommend this one. And then uh, an internet source by Pastor Kerrigan, um, and you can find this information on pilgrimway.org as a Helen Nettleton. He wrote an excellent book, Nettleton versus Finney, and I do re- I do uh, use some of his uh, material in this. Uh, recently, I just picked up Azahel Nettleton's Revival Sermons. I have not read through it yet. I just got it this week, and I'm looking forward to digging into it. I am also in the process of acquiring a hymn book that Azahel Nettleton um, put together. He compiled. It's called Village Hymns for Social Worship, Selected and Original Design as Supplement to the Psalms and Hymns of Dr. Watts. And he put this together in 1822. And that's when he came down with typhoid. He, he got really sick during this time, so he put this hymn book together. But he did not want to overshadow Isaac Watts. As many of you may know, Isaac Watts' hymns were very popular uh, during this time period. So I'm, I'm in the process of getting an 1824 uh, second edition of that to add to my library. The presentation here is, is, is going to serve as a foundation for something that is uh, going to be much bigger. Uh, my prayer while I was writing this and putting this together was, was that I'd have enough material and, and good profitable material that would be a blessing and an encouragement to you men. My other prayer was that I'd deliver it well enough so that you could understand what I'm saying. Uh, I have been told numerous times I talk too fast that sometimes my words blend. Uh, so I get a little uh, nervous when I get up in front of people, believe it or not. I've always said that even from the very beginning. Who am I to be called into the ministry and to talk when there are far greater men than myself who could do a better job, but God called me, and so I have to do what God's called me to do. I think of Moses, and uh, he's arguing with God why he shouldn't you know, speak to the Israelites. And God said, look, I gave you that mouth, and I gave you that tongue, so use that for, for my glory. It was Dwight L. Moody, the great uh, revivalist and evangelist, a woman had confronted him in London, correcting his grammar, and he responded back to her. He, he said, I use my mouth for the glory of God. What do you use your mouth for? And so Dwight L. Moody, as you know, went on to be a great revivalist. Now, I spent a little time on the background of the Second Great Awakening under Nelton, because I think it's important. So I titled this section, Such a Time as These. Um, What you see in in this time period is indicative of this time, this day and age, what we're seeing today. So I spent a little time talking about some things that were going on during that period of time and some things that are going on today to kind of give us a heads up. What is it that we're confronting in this world? Or what is it that's confronting the church? Because I I feel that the church is, is, is bowing a little bit. I feel that the church is being flexed a little bit by our culture. Now, I understand that Christ said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and I believe that. But as the brother said, we need to dig our heels in. We need to be that one and reach out to that one and be that consistent in our uh, ministry. So during this period of time, uh, the Second Great Awakening, uh, there were very similar uh, things going on morally and spiritually that were happening during the First Great Awakening. So there was a moral and spiritual decline And this moral and spiritual decline led to public drunkenness, profanity, skepticism, and and the skepticism had sway amongst the people. And certainly you can see that today. As 
a spiritual and a moral element in our society declines, these other things begin to pick themselves up. And we see that more and more today. The churches were weakened. They weren't as strong as they should have been spiritually. Compromise had, had, had crept in. Standards of holiness and righteousness were lowered, if not altogether abandoned. Uh, likening the conditions of the church to the conditions in the First Great Awakening, Pastor Kerrigan, in his work, Nettleton versus Finney, uh, citing Cotton Mather in 1706, says this, and I quote, It is confessed by all who know anything of the matter that there is a general and horrible decay of Christianity among the professors of it. The modern Christianity is generally but a very specter, scarce a shadow of the ancient, Ah, sinful nation. Ah, children that are corruptors. What have your hands done? So notorious is this decay of Christianity that whole books are even now and then written to inquire into it. End quote. Churches then were filled with the unregenerate. They weren't being filled with the word of God. With the second great awakening... Uh, with the Second Great Awakening falling on the heels of the Revolutionary War, colonialism was coming to a close. But in its place, and during this period of time, rationalism was beginning to creep into institutions of higher learning, and of course that was filtering down to the churches. So the likes of Thomas Paine from 1737 to 1809 Ben Franklin, 1706 to 1790. Voltaire, 1694 to 1778. These men were introducing thoughts of skepticism and doubt, and it was filtering out to the pulpits and to the congregations. Schools that were once founded to train ministers to go out into the ministry had fallen into deep apostasy as a result. It is said in uh, Virginia, and I quote, it was said that every educated man was either a skeptic or an avowed unbeliever. As a result, the churches were losing membership and influence. In fact, it was Voltaire who said this, if we would destroy the Christian religion, we must first of all destroy man's belief in the Bible, end quote. Thomas Paine likewise had his thoughts on the Bible, and he said this, and I quote, I have gone through the Bible as a man would go through a wood and felled trees. Here they lie, and the priest may replant them, but they will not grow. That's from Ayanori, Revival and Revivalism. In terms of impact, Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, 1791 to 1792, is reported to have sold over a million copies that's in 1792. The work of reason, uh, I'm sorry, the age of reason is said to be just as popular. Common Sense sold over 500,000 copies. It was estimated 20% of the colonists owned a copy. The effects that this had on a youth can be likened unto the work by Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. His book, The God Delusion, was released in 2006 and since has sold over 3 million copies. The target audience, young people. It was number four 
on the New York Times bestseller list. We ask ourselves, what are we up against? What are we facing? What are our young people listening to? What are they reading? What are they seeing on their social media accounts? These are the kinds of things that influence our young people. And I spend a little time on that because the next thing I want to address is the literary philosophy of Jacques Diderot called Deconstructionism. DesiringGod.org has a great summation of Jacques Diderot's deconstruction theory. So you can check that out at DesiringGod.org. What does deconstruction even mean? I'm just going to quote one reference from that article to help you understand what our young people are listening to. Because deconstruction, is that's something I'm hearing a lot more of lately. Kids are deconstructing from the faith. The things that we held to, the so-called traditions, just think of marriage. Just think of the state of the marriage units. Think of the state of the family in our nation and the changes that have been made over the last year, year and a half. And here's the quote. And I quote, Deconstruction asserts that human language at best communicates not absolute truth, but how a certain individual conceives of truth at a certain moment in time. In the context of his spiritual, political, religious, environmental, and experiential influences. And so, in other words, what you're reading in the Bible, well, that was relevant 2,000 plus years ago. Marriage doesn't mean the same today. It was interpreted different then. You see the difference? This is what our young people are facing today. One more thing. I promise I'll move on from this point, but I think it's important to understand what was going on here because the very same things that Azahel Nettleton faced during that period of time are the very same things that we are facing in this time. And this here is from Ligonier Ministries called thestateoftheology.com. And this is in regards to the Bible. I recommend you, you look at this poll that they did, this survey, it, it's got some information on there that will be, at first, probably very disheartening. But I think it's important information nonetheless, because it gives you an idea. It puts your finger on the pulse of what people in America are thinking. And if we can understand that, then we can frame our language and our preaching in accordance. We can give an apologetic or contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So it's Here's, here's what they say about the Bible. U.S. adults increasingly reject the divine authorship of the Bible, relegating it to the same category as other religious writings and purportedly sacred texts. This view makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that they uh, resonate with while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with their personal views or broader cultural values. How many of you haven't run into that when you're preaching the Word of God and you're dealing with moral issues and how quickly they change the subject of those moral issues? That's your opinion. That's what you think. That's what they used to believe. This is the, this is the state of things in our nation. And so he goes on. They give this statement and then they give uh, a percentage of people that believe. They go from 2014 to 2022. It's statement 16 for those of you that may look it up. 
And this is what they said. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. U.S. adult finding. 2014, 41% agreed. 2016, 44% agreed. 2018, 47 agreed. 2020, 48% agreed with that statement. 2022, 53% agreed with that statement. Now, I'm assuming the poll sample is probably between 500 and 1,000. I think there's a standard on that. I wasn't sure of what it was. Why did I share that? Why did I feel that was important? Well, largely in part because I want to be an encouragement to the men that are here to help us all understand the state of things in the world that we're called to go out and minister to. I firmly believe that we should allow the Bible, or the Bible should be preeminent in all things, to really hold that up the way God intended it to be held up. And we cannot give any ground in this matter. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones absolutely insisted that preachers give no ground whatsoever in regards to the absolute authority, inerrancy, and infallibility of the Word of God. And I think we may have slipped a little bit there. The next thing that we see, the Christians of the day, that is to say, during the time of Azahel Nettleton, uh, remarked that these were dark times, long times, and that there was a falling off. This is from Ian Murray, Revival and Revivalism. I think many would uh, agree with me that these are indeed low times that we live in. And one more book that I would recommend, obviously I recommend the Bible, but one other book that I would recommend is by Martin Lloyd-Jones, Knowing the Times. That was an excellent. We come to the subject here for our study, A Man Born in Due Time, as a Hell Nettleton. Ezehel Nettleton was born in 1783 in North Killingsworth, Connecticut. I looked at the map, and that's about an hour and a half from Worcester. Basically, if you look at Worcester, draw a straight line down, it's almost right right down at the bottom. Uh, So it's a good good distance away. Um, He was the second child in the family. The first was his older sister. Um, It was a family of six. They lived a moderate but comfortable life. Uh, His parents were well respected. They were farmers. His father uh, taught the boys how to farm, and his mom taught the girls how to do the women things, to take care of the things in the house, to cook, uh, things concerning the home, what have you. And that's the way they lived. His parents weren't particularly religious people, but they did catechize him. They catechized him with the Westminster Uh, assembly or catechism. And that was something that was required by the church at the time. There were no other options if you were going to be a part of the church. There were certain conditions that needed to be met, and that was one of them. It was necessary to be agreement with the uh, Westminster Confession. And so this was drilled into him all through his childhood and served to bring conviction later on in his life when he was going through the, what he called religious impressions by the Holy Spirit. And so the, the, uh, he continued his life living it and being under the teaching of his parents. Uh, they were strong Orthodox Calvinists 
And this is something that prevailed amongst the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians during their day. So a lot of that teaching and doctrine was embedded in him. It is said that Azahel Nettleton lived a fairly unblemished life. We know the Bible says there are none good, no, not one. But all things considered, he lived a fairly unblemished life. In other words, he wasn't St. Augustine uh, when he went through uh, his little moral decline, uh, if you will, exploring the flesh uh, before he came to be converted himself. And so he had his biblical training to help frame him and to put a wall around his conscience to keep him from engaging in um, sinful, immoral activities. He was a man called of God. And so, as as Hell Nettleton lived this life, and he began to think, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. Uh, there was a time in the fall when Azahel Nettleton came under conviction. It was a little bit of a conviction. He began to think about life and death. The story goes that he was in a field and he was just, just thought came over him. And someday I'm going to die. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to spend eternity? It is said that he wept, but then he kind of dismissed it. He didn't really dig into it any deeper. He didn't pursue it. He just kind of let it go. And then, shortly thereafter, he was at a meeting, at a revival, and he began to struggle with his own guilt and shame before God. And it says, I have a quote here, Revivals were few during this period of time. The spirit had seemed to be withdrawn, but commencing in 1798, not less than 150 churches were blessed with the outpourings of the Holy Spirit. That's... Bennett and Bonner. So he's going through these trials. He's struggling with the reality of life and death, heaven and hell. His thoughts were consumed with doom during this period of time. He feared that death would strike him down at any time. He had very little conception of the divine law or even of depravity at this time. He did acknowledge that he was a sinner he did acknowledge that he needed to be pardoned. And he felt at this time an urgency to pray. So that's a working of the Spirit in the heart of an unregenerate man. You know, one of the things that I learned pastoring and seeing revivals is that unless God does the work, there is no salvation. Amen. The Bible says salvation is of the Lord. It's one thing to get people to perform an action. But it's another thing to see the Holy Spirit do that in the hearts of those that are lost. And I think that's a big part of what is lost today. We've become too focused and dependent on methods and numbers. 250 walked the aisle. 400 saved. 700 made a profession of faith. What's the fruit? And again, somebody will come and say, well, we shouldn't judge. We shouldn't judge fruit. We shouldn't criticize people's salvation or question it. I put it this way. You should question it. 
If you have no desire for the things of God, if you have no desire to pray, if you have no love for Christ, if you have no love for the brethren, if you have no love for the Word of God, then there's something wrong with you spiritually, and you need to go before God and get that checked. To engage flagrantly in sin with no remorse, with no guilt, and no shame before God, there's a problem. And here we see Azahel Nettleton, he lived what would be considered a decent life. I mean, his parents were not overly religious, but they were decent people, and they followed what they thought was the right thing during that period of time. They gave him enough in the catechism. That word, as the brother pointed out, that word just settled in the heart. The, the Puritans called it law work. Law work in the heart. That word, I think Paul said, the law came in what? Sin revived. So he became aware of that sin. So these, he's going through this this. Uh, anxiousness of his soul. He kept hearing sermons that were bringing conviction. But at the same time, infidel thoughts, as he said, kept entering his mind. But his conviction went deeper. He read David Brainerd's diary and Edward's revival of religion. And it got worse and worse and worse. Whenever he heard these sermons, he just fell deeper and deeper into the hole. He was offended by the doctrine of God's sovereignty and election. It greatly distressed him. Much weighed heavy on him. He went through this time of wandering, trying to find peace with God. He was in his, to quote the Pilgrim's Progress, in his own slow of despond. He employed all things that he thought were right before God but to no avail. Someone said of Azahel Nettleton, he didn't hate sin because it was committed against God, but merely dreaded its consequences. And so this soul, this agony of soul, continued for ten months, but the Lord was not far from Nettleton. Soon, his doubts and his fears were replaced with peace. It was here that he began to see the things of God differently. It was here that his affections went from affections on the things of the world to affections on God. Mm. A love for God, a love for the Bible, a love for the brethren, and a love for souls. Mm. A real passion for these things. His conversion, as the uh, uh, books had stated, his biography stated, was not anything notable wasn't any uh, dramatic things or displays of fanaticism. It was just the quiet, inward peace and confirmation. The Roman, Paul to the letter of Romans, uh, says, The Spirit beareth witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. Is that assurance that comes to us from the Spirit of God. And so, the next section here is, Every man to his work, the approximate time frame for the actual awakening, uh, according to one source, is 1792 to 1808. Uh, one other source had it broken down into three sections. The first was 1795 to 1810, and that was the Kentucky Revival. The second part was from 1811, which was the calling and the sending out of Azahel Nettleton to about 1825. And then the third was 1825 to 1835 with Charles Finney. 
those two there are critical, and this is something I certainly want to explore again at another time. There was a complete shift theologically in how the revivals were approached from Azahel Nettleton and Charles Finney. And I'm going to get to some of those notes towards the end. It's significant. We ask why there's no revival. A big part of that is probably theological in nature. If everything I've read about Asahel Nettleton and Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield and others, it was strongly reformed in their theology, so they preached, as did Asahel Nettleton, strongly on the depravity of the human heart, the absolute need for regeneration. Asahel Nettleton preached against self-righteousness. He preached repentance. These were the key elements in their preaching. And these are the things that brought people to their knees in repentance, crying out to God for mercy. And so there was a tremendous surge of evangelical fervor in New England. So pockets of revivals were breaking out. Uh, Nettleton's birth town, there was a revival happening there at the church he attended. So soon after his conversion, which was sometime in 1800, Azahel Nettleton felt the call to serve Christ. But it wasn't originally to be a revivalist. He was originally called to be a missionary, or at least he thought he was called to be a missionary. And then he preached for his friend Bennett, and revival broke out. And they compelled him to go on a revival road to preach evangelistic uh, meetings. It was said while he was at Yale, and he was at Yale from 1805 to 1809, the then president of Yale was Timothy Dwight. Timothy Dwight is the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. And he said this about Azahel Nettleton. He will make one of the most useful men this country has ever seen. So Nettleton was licensed to preach in 1811 in the autumn of 1812, Nettleton received an invitation to preach in South Salem, New York. On his way to New York, he stopped over to spend a week in South Britain, Connecticut, where his fame as an evangelist began. In 1817, he was ordained a congregational evangelist. His theology was thoroughly in keeping with that of the godly men who had preceded him in the Congregational and Presbyterian churches of the land. As I stated earlier, the thrust of his sermons was strongly Calvinistic. He preached the necessity of regeneration, introduced the doctrine of depravity. He made direct hits on the conscience. He laid waste to self-righteousness. He expressed in no uncertain terms the absolute need for repentance and faith and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting thing, for those of you that like to study uh, famous figures in history, Francis Wayland. I don't know how many of you know about Francis Wayland, but I'd look him up and do a little study on him. He was president of Brown University from 1827 to 1855. He considered Nettleton to be one of the best, or two of the, one of the two best preachers of his generation. He said he was a solid doctrinal preacher. One thing about Nettleton, when he went into a church or into a community, he didn't go where he wasn't invited. He didn't impose himself on the pastors. 
And during this period of time, uh, there was a fellow by the name of James Davenport who was really stirring up a lot of trouble, causing division in the churches, speaking out against pastors, particularly those pastors that spoke against him. So there was a, a feeling with a lot of the preachers in the area uh, concerned legitimately because of this man. And, you know, here comes Azahel Nettleton. Is he going to be like James Davenport? And, of course, uh, that was shown to be wrong as Azahel Nettleton showed himself to be a friend of pastors with a genuine heart for people, a love for souls. He would go into a, a town or a village, wherever it was that he was invited to preach, and ask about the prayer meetings that were taking place to make sure that was happening. And then he'd come in and preach. And he'd preach the material that I mentioned to you just a few moments ago. And many people would be converted as a result of it. He wasn't in to usurp the authority of the pastor. He wasn't in to tell them what they would do, whether they would do a right or wrong. He was just there to be a blessing and to minister to them. He really had a heart for them. His uh, ministry probably lasted about 20 years. And it is said the numbers of churches where there were revivals were estimated at 60 to 70. And I'm going to give a, a list here. I'm going to go through these kind of quick, but bear with me. Just to give you an example of how many were converted under his ministry. Salisbury, Connecticut, in the winter of 1816, there was no pastor and only 17 male members. 70 were saved in Torrington, Connecticut. 71 people were saved in Waterbury, Connecticut. 118 people joined the church. In Middletown, Connecticut, in the fall of 1817, 84 people were added to the church. Someone mentioned Ashford during the breakfast. 82 people joined the church as a result of Nelton's ministry. In Eastford, Connecticut, 59 people joined, as well as Bolton, Connecticut. In the summer of 1819, Nettleton's uh, ministry shifted from Connecticut to the area near Saratoga Springs, New York. If you look at the map, I think it's Route 87. And Saratoga uh, Springs is right there. Malta is there. Um, Schenectady is just at the bottom. And then Galloway is northwest of Malta. It looks like a triangle if you look at it on the map. Why do I know? Because a couple of years ago, I went with one of the men from the church to Galway, New York. And there's a Baptist church out there called Galway Baptist Church. And they were putting on a seminar talking about as a hell Nettleton. So it was about a five-hour ride. It was, it was a long ride. What surprised me about Galway, and I'm assuming Malta was the same, is how small it was. I mean, it's not, not a particularly big uh a community of people there, population. Why does that matter? Well, here's an example. In Malta, 2021, the census has 17,000 people, residents. In 1820 and 1830, there were 1,500. That's the population. 1,400 people came to a revival that was being led by Ezekiel Melton. So what's the significance of that? 
Well, back then they didn't have cars. They probably traveled by horse to get there. They desired to see and to hear the Word of God. A couple years ago, I went and found George Whitfield's rock. And Brother Gary preached off that rock a number of years ago. He said, what's the significance of that? Well, in doing the study on that particular incident, there were approximately 500 farmers that had come out to hear Whitfield. See, why does that matter? Because there weren't that many people living during that period of time. They had to travel quite a distance to get there in that field to hear George Whitfield preach. You can't get in it now unless you get permission from the owner. I think there's bulls that live in that field. And I'm not going in there to take a picture of the rock and risk being exited out of that pen by a bull. So I'd rather him give me the permission to go in there and then we'll do it. But anyway, I just wanted to give you an idea of how many people came out to see him. Uh, 103 were saved at Stillwater, New York. 118 were converted at Boston, New York. 150 came to Christ at Galway, New York. 50 more at Amsterdam, New York. 200 sinners openly wept in 1819 at Saratoga Springs, New York. 200 more were saved in the fall of 1824 during a preaching tour of Eastern Connecticut. The results of his ministry in other areas like Danbury, Monroe, North Lyme, Hadline, and Bloomfield were all very similar. His labors were greatly blessed to the quickening of God's people and to the awakening and conversion of sinners. He had a remarkable ministry with evident fruit. But unfortunately, his ministry was met with opposition, contending for the faith. My comments here are brief because I believe the subject between Finney and Nelton is its own lecture, covering some of the heresies of Finney, his new measures as far as revival is concerned, are things not to be taken lightly. And I'm going to share a few things with you in a moment with regards to that. There's such a contrast between the two men and their burden for souls, or lack thereof, with Finney. Also with reliance on the Holy Spirit of God. And then with Finney, the lack of theology and the focus on pragmatism or methods. The tension between these two men began sometime in 1826 and didn't calm down until about 1828. During that time, supposedly, George, um, I'm sorry, Lyman Beecher, who was supposedly a close friend of Nettleton, worked a truce, but then at some point ended up siding with Fitting. The contention was so great there was no reconciliation. And I would say this, there is no reconciliation with heresy. There is no reconciliation. Finney's revivals were very pragmatic. They were focused on methods and not the spirit. Nettleton did not use fancy gimmicks. He was a man of prayer 
He was a man of the word. In one conversation he had with a pastor, he had asked about prayer meetings. They said no. Nettleton asked why he should even come to preach revival. Nettleton held to old school, old paths, preaching that taught that the work of revival was the sovereign work of God. I agree with that. Finney differed from Nettleton from a sociological perspective as well. And again, I'm only uh, just covering these. Certainly more detail could be given. Just a little bit uh, background on it. He believed that salvation was purely the result of the sinner's decision to accept Christ with little to no influence from the Holy Spirit. He He rejected all forms of Calvinism with its emphasis on the converting work of the Holy Spirit. I certainly disagree with Finney on that regard. The Holy Spirit does the work in the hearts. Finney, in contrast to Nettleton, um, who believed in and taught the depravity of man, believed that man's problem was with his will, not his nature. The Bible says, we are by nature children of wrath, even as others. So there's a big difference there. Man did not inherit the sin nature of Adam. He just didn't exercise his will correctly. And one last point. Uh, by Finney's own admission, he rejected the fundamentals of Calvinism. And this includes the vicarious atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed that these would hinder revival. And I say these doctrines I could not receive. There was a time when I read Finney. There was a publication, a short one, that used to be put out by Jack Trick. Uh, how to Revivalism uh, Measures or Methods or something. It was a little, little cartoon book. But typical. You remember that? Yeah. And I followed his ways. I, I believe that. You just get them down the aisle. You get people to raise their hand. You get people to fill out a track or a card or make some motion. And they're saved. One of the things that started to happen to me in the ministry is seeing all these people making these professions of faith or saying they know Jesus but no fruit. And it was somebody at the church a number of years ago, we were having a baptism and the person said to me, sure you want to baptize that person, Pastor? Because every time you baptize someone, they leave. Now, it was meant in jest, but it cut to the heart. What am I doing? What's going on in this ministry? What am I missing? I'm looking at the method. If I can just get them down the aisle, if I can just get them to do something to show some sign that they're interested in Jesus. That's shifted now. Now it's, I'm praying and waiting on the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of those that we're praying for, those that are lost. That's where it should be. You, listen, I say to people, I can get people to come to church. I can make an announcement on the radio and say, for the first 50 people that show up at the doors on Sunday morning, I'll give a $50 gas card to I could fill the church up with that. And I could preach the message. They'd probably listen to it. But you know what they're thinking about? When's he going to stop talking so I can get out and put $50 worth of gas in my car? Just one of many um, areas in my life that I've had to really evaluate and change.
The ministry and its impact. This is the last point this morning. Am I, am I good? Am I oh, just all right? I wasn't sure how this is all going to play out. All right. The ministry of Azahel Nettleton wasn't a fly-by-night, blow-in, blow-up, and blow-out kind of ministry. It was a ministry wrought with prayer and dependence on God. It was a ministry of God for the people of God and sinners. It was a ministry whose fruit was lasting, perhaps for generations. Hebrews 11, verse number 4, to go back to that chapter. He being dead, yet speaking. Even today, as Hell Nettleton's ministry is having an impact. Lyman Beecher, as I mentioned earlier, said this about his preaching. The revivals with which Nettleton had been connected showed less of the defect and more of the moral power than I have ever known or expected to see again. Francis Whalen, again, a fascinating study in itself. He was president of Brown University and fought against slavery. He wrote two notable works which should be available online. The Elements of Moral Philosophy and the Elements of Political Economy. He was known as Mr. Baptist from the standpoint of his um, influence as an educator and writer. And Whalen said this about Nettleton's revivals. A surge of evangelical power had touched his soul. That's how Francis Whalen felt after Nettleton preached. The region was overspread by a revival of religion, especially through the labors of Nettleton. Whalen's sons said of him that his spirit received a quickening, an impulse whose influence never ceased to be felt and he gained lessons never to be forgotten in the mode of addressing men on religious subjects. Nettleton preached at a college in Schenectady where Wayland was. The students were converted. And as a result of this conversion, daily evening prayer meetings were established at the college under Wayland. It is estimated over 30,000 people were converted under his ministry. Perhaps one of the most significant things about Nettleton's ministry is not the sheer number of conversions, but the number who remained faithful to Christ many years later. Many evangelists today would be delighted to find even a small percentage of their converts, much less to see them living for the Lord. That could be said of Nettleton but not so much of Finney. For example, a church in Rocky Hill after a revival, this is in Connecticut, 84 people had gotten converted and 84 people remained faithful according to their pastor's report 26 years later. Nettleton was a bachelor his whole life. He lived simply. He owned no property. He didn't charge for meetings. He suffered poor health most of his life. He got really sick in 1822 with typhoid, and that affected his health for the remainder of his life. He died in 1844 at the age of 61. It's a fascinating study. I like these biographical sketches. It drives us back to look at to see how men, how men functioned in a world that was at the time pretty hostile to religion. Men that relied on God, 
men that relied on the sovereignty of God, men that prayed together. It is said of these churches during this period of time, they weren't doing anything special. They weren't trying to implement some methods or some gimmicks. They were just some good men, good preachers, preaching the word of God, ministering to their people, praying. And then revival broke out. All right, I'm, I'll turn it over to you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. I just want to uh, mention that 